This is American Origin Stories. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk turned traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. During the 1950s, North America and the Soviet Union were in a cold war, terrorizing each other with fears of nuclear attack. Computers at that time, they were enormous and expensive and exclusively used by the military and universities. Access to computer networks meant you had to physically travel to them until February 1965, when a computer scientist named Lawrence Roberts got a government contract to develop an experimental computer network. Six months later, Roberts succeeded in connecting a computer at MIT's Lincoln Laboratory in Cambridge, Massachusetts, to a mainframe computer at the System Development Corporation in Santa Monica, California. So who says the government isn't good at anything? With a little funding, it turns out we can use it to change the world. Taxpayers financed the first ever high-speed network among universities and corporations. And that was the beginning of the ARPANET, the Advanced Research Projects Agency Network. In 1969, Roberts writes... One of the first email programs, which allows somebody to save and delete and organize electronic messages, and they can be sent over the ARPANET. ARPANET was a U.S. taxpayer-financed project whose underlying technology was completely transparent and shared with a whole generation of computer scientists. And the U.S. government, they supersized ARPANET In 1981, through the National Science Foundation, another U.S. government agency, which funded the Computer Science Network and established supercomputing centers at every major university. And by 1990, ARPANET was formally decommissioned because all this world-changing technology was given away to telecom and computer companies, allowing the commercialization of a worldwide network, now known as the Internet. The European Organization for Nuclear Research, they contracted researchers to create a system for using and sharing documents. And that's what became known as HTML, Hypertech Markup Language, which is what the World Wide Web was built on. Anybody could write in HTML. Any website could link with any other website. Any individual spot on the internet could be indexed by emerging search engines, and the possibilities were staggering. Our entire way of communicating and distributing and interacting and accessing each other's information and media was going to be in the hands of every citizen. All you needed was a telephone line and a modem and a service provider. Open systems, shared technology, open architecture, encouraging innovation and software and hardware development. Apple was the outlier 
Most computers themselves were open boxes, which allowed and inspired hobbyists to tinker and customize and invent. Software businesses, small businesses, based on the personal computer and the web, were springing up all over the place. Creativity was exploding, and that is the origin of the internet. And what we have right now is the polar opposite. Closed systems, closed boxes, proprietary databases controlled by companies who were lucky enough to capture a critical mass of market share. They have hidden and ever-changing formulas for indexing content. And that content, which is everybody's information, is controlled by giant private actors. So the whole promise of the democratization of information is gone. It's an illusion that lives in its place. Social media companies, which is kind of just a fancy name for a few websites, are now the gateway to the whole internet. And it makes sense how it turned out that way. You want access to the digital world through your digital relationships, and those relationships are now curated by a few large databases. Their technology is old and unimpressive. Their value is the numbers of people using them as their gateway. So for the sake of understanding this more deeply, let's do a thought experiment. What if social media networks operated like the internet did in the beginning? What if instead of worrying what happens to your information network if some crazy chaos agent goes metaphorically nuclear, we had an open system like we had at the beginning designed to withstand any agent of chaos, a metaphorical nuclear attack. Meaning, what if we had an open network? What if Instagram and Facebook and LinkedIn and Snapchat and all those social media platforms operated on a standard protocol, which retained your profile securely, but allowed sharing? Posts, comments, messages, reposts, all the features we know and love and don't love are open universal standard protocols. So TikTok, interfaces with Mastodon and Twitter, whatever your favorite gateway is. So think of it like your phone. You use AT&T, but your friend using Verizon or Credo, they can still call you. They don't need another phone. Maybe you like the features of your Zuckerberg app or your TikTok app, or maybe you want to make your own app. There's no barrier to entry. You just follow universal standards. You can invent your own set of features and you can license them to other people. You could charge money, you could give it away. And the market will decide what it likes. So extend that universal function that doesn't secretly push its own content over others, like Amazon's been accused of time and time again. And imagine there's a reasonable cap on any potential social media app charges because it's treated like a public utility. And since over a quarter of the United States workforce uses social media for their job, we probably shouldn't allow price gouging. The alternative, what we have now, is kind of like needing a different television for Netflix and a different TV for Amazon and then another TV for Hulu. So every app is its own closed system. So what do closed systems do? They throttle innovation. And this is true across the board. When the gasoline engine was invented, it was patented by a guy named George Selden. A few monopolists owned the rights to it. Nobody could make anything based on the technology. And then Henry Ford comes along in 1911, and he wins a challenge to the patent. He makes it worthless. And so a new association is formed called the Motor Vehicle Manufacturers Association, and they share technology. They share innovations. Within a few decades, we've transformed our entire planet for a new mode of transportation, for better or worse. 
That is the kind of exponential economic growth we have with a cap on it right now. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. So as to breaking up monopolies and standardizing social media as a utility and how that works on a technical level, I'm not going to get into the coding of that. That's not the purview of this podcast, nor could I because I'm not a software engineer. But in a past life, 20 years ago, I was a chief executive at a software company overseeing the engineering. And it was a project that was financed by AOL, Time Warner, and Intel. We had 50 programmers. We had interface designers and so forth. And we oversaw software development, organizing, managing large databases. And we did a lot of trailblazing in those areas, as everyone does for the most part at that time. So the company that I was in charge of, we created the first broadband search engine. And as far as I know, the very first interactive custom advertising based on search results, for which I owe everybody a huge apology. But as any good capitalist would say, as a poor excuse, somebody was going to invent it if we didn't. But in any case, I have some experience in this area, but that doesn't matter because it doesn't take a professional in software development to tell you that right now, as an end user of all the social media platforms, we're stuck with clunky features and functionality that are easily 20 or 30 years old. I mean, it would be like being forced to drive a Model T if you want to use any paved road. If we broke up the monopolies and went back to the original purpose of democratized networking, safe from the sabotage of chaos actors, we could be continuing to enjoy this kind of gold rush with all the brilliant engineers and creative minds out there. We see them on Instagram and Facebook and so forth, but they're constrained. They're guessing at secret protocols. They're trusting marketing tools that have no independent audits, no ability to access your friends or followers or organize them on your own terms, no way to message your friends as groups, no way for your friends or followers to opt into their own levels of interaction. Imagine you build a mailing list of a million people and you invest thousands or hundreds of thousands into your community and then you get banned. All of a sudden, no recourse. This happens all the time warranted and not. Imagine you're a small business and for some reason you can only reach a fraction of your community. It's kind of like not having access to your own address book on your phone or not having access to your own email list. You press call on your phone and your phone decides who you should talk to. So nobody would stand for that lack of control over our own messaging, but we've been indoctrinated into thinking in social media, it's totally normal to have no agency whatsoever as to who sees what or what we're targeting or what is targeting us. Some would say it's a private business. Well, true, it's true. But that is the opposite of its origin and its original purpose. And 
From a taxpayer perspective, it would be fair to call it theft of a common resource that we finance. And the theft isn't just about stealing better functionality. It's about taking away the free market, which is a place where small businesses can grow with a fighting chance. Small businesses are often jobs that are run by people with a passion, who are getting into something because they love it. We're talking about jobs with meaning for the people that invent them. The potential for innovation in an open social media platform where it's treated as a utility with standard functionality is probably as vast as imagining all the things that you can plug into an electrical outlet. Without monopoly control, the people using the apps become as important as the apps themselves. So the billionaire, who shall not be named, who just bought Twitter, called its verification system, the blue check system, a lords and peasants system. Well, that's pretty funny. The lords and peasants system is Twitter being bought by a billionaire with a decentralized social media standard platform run as a utility. Communities could select their own moderators. They could opt in or out. They could choose the Twitter rules, or you could dump those for something else as easy as porting your phone number from Verizon to Credo. It doesn't mean you cut yourself off from all your contacts. It doesn't mean you throw your phone in the trash. It doesn't feel like you sold all your belongings and moved out into the wilderness. We regularly refer to our social media as our public square. So let's go with that for a moment. We would consider it quite undemocratic to allow one person or one company to decide what you can wear to your public square, who you could talk to. We wouldn't want someone to secretly control who we see or don't see in the public square. We wouldn't want someone following our every move, selling every move that we make to the highest bidder, the one who thinks they can use that information to trick us into doing something. Nobody would stand for that in Boston Common. Why would we stand for it in our digital commons? When a service is so big, a billion people use it, including our entire government apparatus, all our democratic representatives, all our institutions, every major business, that is every pillar of our digital country. Every aspect of the reality of that space shouldn't be for sale and only available to purchase for the richest man in the world. The word public comes from Latin words, which mean people, but they also mean adult. An adult human being needs some sense of agency, some autonomy. What we currently put up with, and by we, I mean the whole planet, not just America, what we deal with in the concentration of social networks is actually much more similar to the kind of authoritarian communism most people in free countries fear. I'm not talking about the boogeyman communism, the fake communism that think tanks who work for the insurance industry want to confuse with universal health care. I'm talking about the really scary version where nobody has any personal authority over anything anymore, where everything is controlled by a concentrated power protected by armed troops with no accountability to the public that they exist to serve. That is how monopolies work. Let's use the metaphor of a house. Imagine somebody sold you a house and then said, no, you can't repaint it without coming back to the seller and buying a whole new house or getting the paint from them. Or if you do paint your house, you'll lose your insurance. Also, you can't play music in your house unless you use the seller's music service. Anything you want to have in your house also, you have to purchase through the seller's store. If that happened in America, you'd flip. You'd be like, what is this post-apocalyptic communist nightmare? 
That's modern-day Apple and your iPhone and the Apple Store. That's Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, which, by the way, $8 to use Twitter? That's technology which includes a bulletin board where people can post 280 characters of text. That was available in the 1990s. Over and over with each one of these inventions of technology, we've seen how universal standards create innovation, from the gas engine to programming for television to telephones. Social media is bigger than all that combined. In a social media product, the curation formula is the same as its ingredients. Now, people sometimes use the analogy of your media diet. So for people who want to eat healthy or want to lose weight or get into like superhero shape, you know you don't just count calories, right? So in media consumption, the metaphorical equivalent of calories would be your time. Do you spend an hour on social media a day or do you spend eight hours? Eight hours would be too many calories. But if you've ever talked to a nutritionist, they'll tell you it's not about just counting calories. You need a balanced amount of carbohydrates and proteins and fats. You need a minimum amount of fiber and you need to cap your salt intake. And you want to avoid processed foods and so forth. If you don't do that, not only will your diet be unsustainable for your health, you'll be more susceptible to disease and so forth. So assuming you can afford healthy food in this economy, you know how to feed yourself in a healthy manner by looking at the labels on your food. Food labeling is required by law for most prepared food. Social media companies have no label. They don't tell you the percentage of the macronutrients. They don't tell you how much sugar, how much salt, the number of times they purposely show you something to piss you off or scare you. You have no idea what you're eating other than the taste, but you don't have any control other than to scroll and do some limited searching. And we all know how it's designed to keep you eating as much as possible. So from a consumer standpoint, this is a crime. Imagine f not just food, but any product no longer required to have a label. You go, you buy a pair of pants. No idea what the material is. You go get a car. No idea what the engine has underneath it. How many cylinders? There's no specs. You can't even open the hood. What's the mileage? Well, no control even over where you're going. You get in the car, unless you're really focused, it's gonna just drive you down some dark tunnel for three hours. Robert Reich, 3.2 million followers on Facebook. Worked for presidents Ford, Carter, Clinton, advisor to Obama. The man was the chancellor's professor of public policy at the Goldman School, blah, blah, blah. I could go on for an hour, he's a lecturer at Harvard. He's brilliant and he's a great human being. And he has 3.2 million people who signed up to his Facebook page. He writes an article on Substack about labor, really important concept for public policy. Most of us labor for a living. He posts it on Facebook, 711 people like it, 161 comments. He gets 48 shares, 48 out of 3.2 million people. That is 0.02% of his audience who he's reaching. Robert Reich is shadow banned. His reach is depressed. He has no insight into why or how or how much, and he has no recourse. He has invested most likely enormous resources into building that huge audience that he can't access or categorize or contact without paying to boost. Again, with no independent transparency. Here's another example. Mark Ruffalo, Emmy nominated, 
Academy Award nominated, Grammy nominated. Every major award, one of the top performers in the field has 6.2 million followers, nearly twice the amount as Robert Reich. Posts about floating solar power technology could revolutionize our move to green energy. In three hours, this superstar gets 194 likes, seven comments, four shares. That is 0.003% of his audience that he's accessing. HBO, the HBO, home of some of the best television in the country. Our country, the cultural capital of the world, has 12 million followers. They post about White Lotus, one of the most popular shows on their network, incredible acting, won tons of awards. The post gets 161 likes, 18 comments, and seven shares. That is 0.001% of their audience they're accessing. Anyway, you get the point. A few companies dominate the entire social network of a society. All the major players and their access to their own fans. There's a whole political movement devoted to the idea of small government, meaning that they don't want a few people having control governing the entire economic, political, social life of 350 million people. But that is what we have when we have monopolies. We have a small group of people governing every aspect of our economic, social, and political life. And now let's just talk about the product for a moment. Because this is a product which isn't just a widget. This is a product whose importance is on par with a pair of pants or a car. Every survey out there shows the majority of people get their news and information digitally and mostly through social networks. Social networks being privately owned, mostly by infamous billionaires who are notoriously antisocial. The founder of TikTok literally wrote in a public message on his company website, I'm not very social, preferring solitary activities. After having publicly committed to further deepen cooperation with the Chinese Communist Party, which tightly controls what people can see and say and so forth. Two years ago, I think it was, TikTok had supposedly 2 billion monthly users, same as Facebook, around 2 billion, Instagram, 2 billion. How they're run is astonishing when you think about it. TikTok, a Chinese company, is not available in China at all. Completely different controls over content and addiction features in the version that's available outside China as the one that's available inside. And remember that these apps are designed just like mobile games. They give you a little dopamine hit, give you a button to press, keep clicking and getting more little dopamine pellets. We're like pigeons, pecking away and getting a reward. Some of those pellets are good, and there's certainly a deep and genuine and important value of connecting to one another for every kind of purpose under the sun. I mean, this is a fundamental human need. But how are we connected? The formula for the curation of the content and our social networks aren't being done for the incentive of our betterment. This isn't being done to strengthen democracy or the public good or to address and mobilize public works. These are all designed to sell our attention to advertisers. There's quite a few decent documentaries on this. There's the Cambridge Analytica documentary called The Great Hack. It's terrifying. And you see how this is essentially weapons-grade psychological warfare tools being unleashed on the general public for social manipulation to do what? Whatever. 
buy things, buy into things. This isn't a conspiracy. This is public knowledge. People like Rupert Murdoch and Elon Musk are very transparent about their motives for using media to manipulate people. They make public statements to the effect of exactly what they're going for. What politicians they want to see elected. Who they're going to back on their media platforms. The biggest media platforms in the world. And what are the side effects of using these products? There are all kinds of studies that show, surprise, surprise, a strong link between heavy social media and depression, anxiety, loneliness, self-harm, suicidal thoughts, feeling of inadequacy about your life or your, how you look, alienation, and of course, radicalization, which makes sense. People are looking for meaning, agency, and control, and they often find themselves going down a rabbit hole to the worst place possible. Instead of those things, instead of empowerment, they find a hellish distortion of that. Someone selling the promise of meaning or agency or control to fill their coffers for empty rewards, approval, attention, money, but it's false purpose. It's a simulacrum. It means a copy of a copy of a copy. It's a representation of something, not the real thing. And that's what the digital world is, right? It's the artificial world. So it lends itself to trickery in the history of humankind as we know it. The digital world is the ultimate example of a great power that requires great responsibility. So all the more important that our entire digital universe is governed by a value system that isn't winner take all, might makes right, or whoever collects the most money and power wins. All that evil stuff that kids know that can be found in every tradition that's ever existed to promote the public good. And the origin of our digital universe supports this. It began as a shared endeavor to solve a potential crisis. And our country used to have some sense of human values when it came to big discoveries. Remember the American virologist, Jonas Salk? He got his start at a free university in New York. I believe it was in Brooklyn. He invented the vaccine for polio. And he gave it away for free. He couldn't comprehend patenting a life-saving medicine that everybody needs. He said that would be like patenting the sun. And that's common sense. We have to actually be trained and educated into believing that everything should be profit-driven and hoarded in our digital universe, filled with all these unique and brilliant suns and stars that's like letting someone purchase and own the light. Can one great big idea actually change the world? First-term Congressman Seth McGuire wants to find out. With a star-studded cast featuring Patrick J. Adams, Kate Walsh, Shanola Hampton, Ming-Na Wen, and Lawrence Fishburne, America 2.0 is a six-part scripted series about one man's quest to transform this country by giving every American citizen one million dollars. Seth is an unflinching idealist, so it should come as no surprise that he's completely ill-equipped to navigate DC's political treachery. On Capitol Hill, even the wildest dreamers have to learn how to play the game. Can his bold and revolutionary plan really save this country? Or is he going to talk himself right out of office? To find out, tune in to America 2.0, 
available wherever you listen to podcasts, or you can learn more at realm.fm.